Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, portions of a news conference this week from Governor Mike DeWine about a bill he vetoed. Then I'll talk with somebody from the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio about concerns with youth getting involved with gambling and about sports betting. In the second half hour, I'll talk with a doctor from the Cleveland Clinic about strokes. And Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families in Columbus, talks about the increasing number of young men who seem to be checking out from society. First up on Columbus Perspective, Governor Mike DeWine vetoed a controversial bill pushed by his fellow Republicans at the State House that would ban gender-affirming care for transgender minors. It also would have prevented transgender girls from playing on girls' and women's sports teams. Leaders in the Ohio House and Senate are now discussing a possible override of the governor's veto. They may have the votes to do it. It requires a three-fifths majority. On Friday, the governor held a news conference to announce his veto and reasons for it. We're presenting about 13 minutes of that news conference. In the last couple of minutes, we'll include his responses to reporters' questions to help clarify his stand on the issue. Here's Governor Mike DeWine. On December 18th, uh, the Ohio legislature sent me House Bill 68. And since that time, I've sought out people on all sides of the issue to hear their concerns. I listened to the bill sponsor, Representative Gary Click, and had a very good conversation with him. I appreciate that he and his colleagues have shined a light on this very important issue. I also listened to physicians and counselors who provide gender-affirming care. Uh, I did that at each of the five children's hospitals in the state. I also listened to physicians who advocate for pausing gender-affirming care until more research on the long-term health effects is conducted. I've listened to families and youth, young people who have had negative experiences, and individuals who have undergone hormone treatments and then detransitioned back to their original gender, as well as those who had gender surgeries in other states when they were minors. I've also listened to youth and parents. Parents have looked me in the eye and have told me that but for this treatment, their child would be dead. They've told me that their child is only alive because of the gender-affirming care that they have received. And youth who have transitioned to a new gender have told me that they are thriving today because of that transition. I think it's very important that we all remember that all those on each side of this issue sincerely and truly believe their position best protects children. These are truly complex issues, and reasonable people, reasonable people can draw vastly different conclusions. This bill would impact a very small number of Ohio's children. But for those children who face gender dysphoria and for their families, the consequences of this bill could not be more profound. Ultimately, I believe this is about protecting human life. 
Many parents have told me that their child would not have survived, would be dead today, if they had not received the treatment they received from one of Ohio's children's hospitals. I've also been told by those who are now grown adults that but for this care, they would have taken their life when they were teenagers. What so many of these young people and their families have also told me is that nothing they have faced in their life could ever prepare them for this extremely tough journey. Parents are making decisions about the most precious thing in their life, their child. And none of us, none of us should underestimate the gravity and difficulty of those decisions. These are gut-wrenching decisions. These are gut-wrenching decisions that should be made by parents and should be informed by teams of doctors who are advising them. These are parents who have watched their child suffer, sometimes for years, and who have real concerns that their child may not survive to reach adulthood. While the child's care team informs their decisions, it is the parents who are living with that child who know their child better than anyone else in the world does. These are horribly, horribly difficult situations. These are crisis situations for that child and for that child's family. Families are basing their decisions on the best medical information that they can get. The decision to move forward should only be reached if the child, the child's parents, and the medical team all agree that that is the right decision. Were I to sign House Bill 68, or were House Bill 68 to become law, Ohio would be saying that the state, that the government, knows better what is medically best for a child than the two people who love that child the most, the parents. Now, while there are rare times in the law, in other circumstances, where the state overrules the medical decisions made by the parents, I can think of no example where this is done where it is not only against the decision of the parents, but also against the medical judgment of the treating physician and against the judgment of the treating team of medical experts. Therefore, I cannot sign this bill as it is currently written. And just a few minutes ago, I vetoed the bill. Representative Click worked very hard on this bill. He studied the issues. He's a good person, a good man, who fervently wants to protect children. I thank the General Assembly for holding many hearings and listening to hours of testimony from all sides. I appreciate their deliberative process. I've listened to the concerns the legislature raised that led to this bill. And while I have reached a different conclusion on whether to sign this bill, I do share a number of these concerns, 
and agree that action is necessary regarding a number of issues that they have raised. I truly believe that we can address a number of goals in House Bill 68 by administrative rules that will have likely a better chance of surviving judicial review and being adopted. Today, I'm directing my administration and the relevant state agencies to begin work on administrative rules that will go through the full JCAR process to establish important protections for Ohio children and Ohio adults. I invite the members of the General Assembly to meet with us, to collaborate, to collaborate in the rule drafting and to move this process forward. And I ask them to work with this starting next week. Let me go through the three points that we will work on administratively. Number one, I adamantly agree with the General Assembly that no surgery of this kind should ever be performed on those under the age of 18. I am therefore directing our agencies to draft rules to ban this practice in the state of Ohio. Number two, I share with the legislature their concern that there is no comprehensive data today regarding persons who receive this care, nor independent analysis of any such data. Therefore, I am today directing our agencies to immediately draft rules to require reporting to the relevant agencies and to report this data to the General Assembly and the public every six months. We will do this not only when the patients are minors, but also when the patients are adults. Number three, I also share the legislature's concerns about clinics that may pop up and try to sell patients inadequate or even ideological treatments. This is a concern shared by people I spoke with who have had both positive experiences and those who have had negative experiences with their own treatments. Those who had positive experiences all noted that they received significant counseling, therapy, and consultation as a family before discussing even the possibility of other treatments. Conversely, those who had negative experiences report that they did not receive, did not receive adequate counseling. This adequate counseling is absolutely essential to getting this right. Therefore, I am directing our agencies to draft rules that establish restrictions that would prevent pop-up clinics or fly-by-night operations and provide important protections for Ohio children and their families and for adults. I truly believe that we can collaborate, find common ground, and adopt rules to protect Ohio children, adults, and families in this area. It will be my goal in the coming weeks to get these protections adopted through a collaborative and deliberate process. All of the comments to this point from the governor had revolved around gender-affirming care. Following his initial statement, a reporter asked him about the element of the bill that would prevent transgenders from playing girls' and women's sports. The sports part of this bill, uh, certainly, certainly important, but it affects just a handful, literally a handful of, of children. Uh, the part that I've addressed uh, affects many more, even though it's a small number of the total population of children in the state of Ohio. So I focused on that, uh, and I did not ever get to the second, the second issue. And that's, you know, uh, enough uh, 
uh, for one for one uh, gulp at this anyway. So we'll we'll come we'll come back and uh, you know when this comes up later on. The governor also clarified his stance on his desire to put rules and regulations in place that ban gender assignment surgery in Ohio, but not gender affirming care. Here's how he explained the differences. Certainly, if it is something uh, that is you know life-saving uh, surgery. No, no one is going to say that that can't occur. Look, there's kids, kids have surgeries, life-saving surgeries, all, all, all the time. But in, in all the families that I talk to, um, you know, who, who looked me in the eye and said, my child would not be alive today but for the care they got. And if you take this care away, there are going to be other families who are not going to be able to get this type of care. You know, none of them, uh, that I talked to, uh, talked about surgery. That's not where they were going in the discussion. And I think that's, a, a, frankly, a fallacy that's out there uh, that, uh, you know, this goes right to surgery. It, it just doesn't. Uh, all the children's hospitals, are, you know, say, we don't do surgeries. Um, look, let's, uh, let's make sure there are no surgeries done and so, by anybody. And so that's, that's what we, we propose here mental health counseling that is extensive and is done by professionals. It's done by people who have a great background in this, pediatric professionals, um, counselors, in psychiatric care. If you look at, again, we don't have exact numbers, but uh, it, it would appear uh, from talking to the children's hospitals, uh, at least in regard to those that they are seeing, the children that they're seeing, that about two-thirds of the children who start this do not get the later get the medication. So two-thirds of them, uh, there's consultation with the family, there's consultation with the child, and there may be something else going on in that child's life uh, besides uh, you know, the gender dysphoria. Uh, and in two-thirds of those cases, they never advance to, to, the, to the treatment. And so that is essential. Uh, it's important this be done right. It's important that, that it be done deliberately, and it's important it be done carefully. And I think that the what we have we're setting out here, and the work that we're going to do with the legislature uh, will uh, assure uh, that any adult or any child in the state of Ohio will be able to go through that through that that process. Governor Mike DeWine from a news conference on Friday. As a side note, former President Donald Trump has weighed in on this issue and Governor DeWine. In a statement, Trump said, quote, DeWine has fallen to the radical left. No wonder he gets loudly booed in Ohio every time I introduce him at rallies, but I won't be introducing him anymore. I'm finished with this stuff. What was he thinking? The bill would have stopped child mutilation and prevented men from playing in women's sports. Legislature will hopefully overturn. Do it fast, unquote. A statement from former President Donald Trump. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Up next, a segment about sports betting and problem gambling in Ohio. We put our lives on the line for our country. We braved the unknown. We did what we were told. And we lit up. Our cigarette packs were as valuable as the packs on our back. Maybe more. At one point, cigarettes were part of our daily ration. Smoke them if you got them. And boy, we were smoking them. Bumming a smoke was the norm. 
It was an escape from the reality of dirt, sweat, and forgetting how many days you were so far from home. Never had to worry so long as you had a light and the smoking lamp was lit. If that was you then, get your lungs screened now. Surviving lung cancer starts with a scan. Learn more at ScreenYourLungs.org. And thank you for your service. This PSA was made possible by industry funding and guidance from lung cancer patient groups. My muscles ached. I was tired all the time. My son had a full-blown asthma attack. It came out of nowhere. The unsettling thing about some symptoms is... I had a fever and these terrible headaches. You don't always know what's causing them. It was Lyme disease from a tick bite. I had Zika virus from a mosquito. He had a reaction to cockroach allergens. Threats to your health can come from unexpected places. Get the facts. Visit pestworld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association. Science is not an opinion. People come before pipelines. It's not too late to act on climate. No one is above the law. At Earth Justice, we hold these beliefs to be self-evident. As a national legal nonprofit fighting for your right to a healthy environment, we are 150-plus lawyers representing clients free of charge because now, more than ever, the Earth needs a good lawyer. No one fights more cases on the environment than Earth Justice. And we win because these are fights we cannot lose. We win for scientists so they can serve at the EPA. We win at the Supreme Court because clean water is for everyone. We win against fossil fuel plants so communities can breathe freely. If you believe what we believe, then help us fight the good fight and help us keep winning by going to earthjustice.org today. That's earthjustice.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Mike Bazelli, who is the Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. What is the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio? Uh, we are a, a statewide nonprofit and advocacy group, so we, we have a couple of charges, uh, one being advocating for uh, responsible gambling and consumer protection, so we're we work very closely with the legislation. We work with the Casino Control Commission and the Lottery Commission, making sure that you know consumer protections are a main part of gambling expansion, and also uh, workforce capacity. So we do all the trainings across the state for counselors and social workers who treat gambling addiction and also working with preventionists and educators, making sure that uh, communities uh, colleges, other populations are, are aware of problem gambling and, and responsible gambling practices and just making making sure it's part of the conversation. And Ohio is uh, right up there now in gambling activity, uh, especially with the explosion of sports gambling this year. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people wouldn't suspect, but Ohio has one of the largest gambling landscapes in the entire country. You know, we have 11 brick-and-mortar casinos and racinos. We were one of the first states with a lottery. Um, and then now we have sports betting, and, and that's inside of our venues, but it's also through mobile applications. So there's there is something for everyone, and, and that's great because a lot of people do and can gamble responsibly and within their means, but it can also be problematic for the folks that, that, that struggle with that. So we need 
need to make sure that we have resources in place to serve them. I think that it's just so interesting, too, because it was such a struggle with statewide votes uh, back in the 90s, I think it was, and failures just to even get one casino in the state. Yeah, well, you could see that once once things started to grow across the nation, um, it, it seemed like it was inevitable that we were going to have casinos here. And we, once they came, David, it was a proliferation, whereas other states may open one venue, wait a few years, open a second and a third. We opened 11 venues in 16 months. So we had a very big growth very quickly, and you can see that in the revenues. Um, And then 2% of the tax revenue does go to the state for prevention and treatment, and that ends up being in the millions of dollars every year. And I can say that Ohio does a really good job utilizing those funds impactfully. Again, making sure that clinicians are trained to treat problem gambling, making sure that that treatment is free of charge to anyone who needs it. And again, a lot of great prevention work being done in the communities. And one of the reasons uh, we're talking to you today is to talk about the holiday season because that kind of presents unique challenges or different challenges when it comes to problem gambling uh, in Ohio, right? Yeah, we, we join a campaign alongside the National Council on Problem Gambling called Gift Responsibly, and it really just talks about how, you know, it, it, it kind of becomes normal to give uh, lottery products, especially scratch-offs as stocking stuffers or other holiday gifts. And you know, there, there can be a, a, an issue there because it really starts to normalize the behavior. And, you know, gambling is not risk-free. Again, a lot of folks who choose to gamble can do so responsibly, but, but it can be a pretty devastating problem for others. And, you know, we know, as with any risk behavior, whether that is a substance, alcohol, the earlier you engage in that behavior in life, the greater risk uh, for developing a problem and also the greater severity of that problem. So, you know, if children are, are receiving lottery products at, at five or 10 years old, it really just normalizes that behavior. And anyone in gambling recovery will tell you that they remember their first big win. They remember winning $100 on a lottery ticket when they were 10 or, you know, going to the racetrack with a, with an older brother or a father and, you know, winning $500 on a horse and what that feeling did and how it made them feel and that it stuck with them and really imprinted on them and led them down that, that, that path and, and a destructive path. So I think, you know, we want to think twice before we start normalizing that behavior for, for young people and presenting them presenting them with those types of gifts. Yeah, that makes sense, because, I mean, if you've got an 8- or 10-year-old who, you know, on Christmas morning gets that out of the stocking stuffer and scratches it off, and even if it's only $2 or 10 the rest of the family is praising them for being a winner, and, and that can absolutely have a big impact. Absolutely. Who doesn't want to win, right? Win anything. Win, win a race, win a, win a sport game, or, or win money. I'm, so... And, and I think you make a great point. It doesn't matter if it's $2, 10 100 it, It's a big win for you, right? So that might be $100 for someone else. It could be 10 for someone else, and especially for a child. You know, you didn't have to risk anything. You didn't have to do any work. All you did was got your dime and, and scratched for two seconds and won some money. So that thought of winning money, I'm putting much into it. But then also, like you said, the praise, people throw their hands up and say, oh, my God. 
glasses is a tremendous thing. Um, that, that can, again, imprint on someone, and they'll want to do it more often. In addition to that kind of thing, though, there's other elements of, of gambling that you folks say uh, kids are being exposed to uh, beyond just that kind of thing, right? Yeah, well, what we're finding out is there are a lot of gambling mechanisms inside of video games. And you hear the word gamification uh, thrown around sometimes. People may have heard the term loot boxes. This is where you actually pay real-life currency to open up a box. Sometimes it looks like a treasure chest or a suitcase inside of a video game, and there could be nothing in it. There could be a very, you know, low type of item, or there could be some great item that can advance you through the game. And what that sounds exactly like is gambling, right? You pay money to the possibility of gaining something else. And it's even gotten to the point where a lot of these games are being mandated or required to show the odds of winning something good or profitable inside of a loot box. Well, what else shows you the odds of winning something, right? Gambling, sports gambling, uh, slot machines. They tell you what the odds of winning are. So kids are really being exposed to gambling elements or actual gambling inside of their games. And these are things that, again, you know, parents, teachers, you know, should start looking out for. And Ohio has a really great resource for this. It's a website called Change the Game Ohio. And it's got great information for educators, for parents, for children about, you know, what this looks like, how, how are gambling components being fit inside of video games. And there's actually a video game inside of this website, something that kids can play to learn about responsible and problem gambling. So I would, you know, I, I'd really uh, advocate for folks to go to that website and, and learn a little bit more about it. Talking with Mike Bazelli, Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. What are the warning signs or the symptoms that a kid, and maybe it's for anybody, might have a gambling problem or just an un- unhealthy uh, take on this sort of activity that yeah. you might be worried about? Yeah, I think the first one people are going to notice is, is changes in mood or behavior. So, you know, agitation, frustration, stress, anxiety, all these types of things. Certainly there's going to be a financial component, right? So are, are people borrowing money? Are they not able to explain where their money is going? You know, maybe there's even some criminal activity. Maybe they're stealing money, pawning or selling, you know, personal items to get money, right? So there's a financial component and warning sign. You know, loss of other activities or hobbies. So all of your time is spent gaming or gambling. You know, you're no longer spending time with friends, family, or other hobbies that the person was interested in. Now, people may think or notice that 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 really mirrors other addictive behaviors, right? Those same warning signs could be said for for alcohol or other drugs, and I think that's important to realize that, hey, we, we all probably already know what these warning signs are. We're just not associating them with gambling. So I think if you're, you see a loved one, a friend exhibiting some of this, and you know that they're engaged in gambling or gaming, that may be, may be a time to have a conversation. And then, you know, we've talked about sports betting. Um, you know, why do people game? Why do people video game? Because it's fun. Why do people sports gamble? Because they like sports, right? And it's fun to watch, and there's the thought that putting money on it may make it even more exciting. And that's all well and good, but I think another huge warning sign is, is video gaming, 
is no longer fun, right? Is it taken a turn where I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm anxious? That is when we can really notice, hey, I need to take a step back because I'm doing this for fun, but it's no longer enjoyable. Sports gambling, you know, I listen to some of these uh, sports pundits on radio or on television who talk about gambling so casually and talk about their gambling activities so casually. It just sounds troubling just listening to them talk about it without even thinking about whether they have a family and kids and and what kind of a financial impact it might be having on them. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It it, it is so casual, right? And that's organizations like ours, that's one of our concerns, right? It's becoming so normalized. Just a few years ago, you know, this isn't 50 years ago, 10 years ago, just a handful of years ago, nothing was more separated than sports and gambling, right? You know, you've got Pete Rose, for an example, right? One of the best, inarguably one of the best baseball players of all time, banned from baseball for gambling. Now, every baseball field in the country has gambling advertisements on their home run porch, inside the stadium and the dugouts, right? So these things that were so far apart have become so intertwined and intertwined so quickly that, that it, it is casual. You can't turn on ESPN or Monday Night Football without being bombarded with, with as much gambling talk as is what's actually going on on the field, right? right? Yeah. So here's another thing. You can easily make the parallel to lottery as a stocking stuffer. It normalizes the behavior. And, um, I, you know, I, I think it's a great point that if they're going to talk about gambling so much inside of, you know, commentary on a game, there should be a, a responsible gambling message as well that, that goes along with it. Right. I mean, more people drink alcohol than gamble, but you never hear anybody on, in a sports broadcast casually talking about how drunk they got the other night. You don't, and you may see a Budweiser advertisement on a commercial or on, you know, the sign inside of a football stadium, but the commentators don't also have a glass of Budweiser in their hand. Exactly. They would all say that that's probably inappropriate. However, we're talking about how the lines are changing and what's the over-under just as casually as we're talking about, you know, how many yards is it to the first down. So I think that's a great, <laughs> that's a great example. Talking with Mike Bazelli from the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. Beyond that, too, you know, there, and I know this goes outside of what your agency does, but I'm just curious about your take on it. I mean, now we've seen an Alabama baseball coach who was caught up with illegal wagering actually at a sports book in Cincinnati, and the Ohio Casino Control Commission got involved in investigating that. It just seems like with gambling going on with college sports and all that, who knows what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, well, I would say that's actually that's actually really inside of our scope. So we're we're really concerned with the college athlete and just the college student in general. I've actually done a lot of work up in Cleveland with uh, universities in the in the Cleveland area, uh, talking with college athletes, talking with Greek Greek life students about responsible gambling, and it is a concern because students are gambling. We know at student athletes are extremely exposed to this. So the question is, one, is it being discussed on campus? Do campus health centers and counseling centers have counselors who are experienced in gambling addiction and can talk to students who may be having a problem? And then 
furthermore, just uh, a lot of these colleges are even partnering with sports betting operators. So again, you know, where is this divide? It seems to be coming too close together. And I can tell you that uh, we're actually working really closely with the University of Cincinnati, who's doing a lot of great work educating their students and even adding problem gambling curricula to social work classes. So, you know, young social workers are, are coming out already knowing about gambling addiction and, and how to treat gambling addiction. So that's really great. And then there's a lot of research being done at Miami and Ohio University. So I think Ohio's taking really great steps to make sure that that this population is being addressed because we can't we kind of can't let sports betting infiltrate, if you will, our, our colleges and universities because that's supposed to be those are supposed to be safe and healthy environments. Right. There's there have been in the past, of course, uh, you know, point shaving in college basketball years ago and all that. But you know, if if you get a, it doesn't even have to be a high profile quarterback. If you get a a, a quarterback at any level in college football who all of a sudden it becomes obvious and and it's proven that he's intentionally thrown a couple of interceptions in a game to lose so he can win in gambling, that's going to be a, a multi-billion dollar issue. <laughs> yeah, and you're already seeing it. I mean, it's happening so often when, you know, a team doesn't go for an extra point or something like that. A right. lot of people start, you know, shouting on social media about how things are fixed and rigged. And the big issue, one, you said you know, point shaving and uh, people being upset and billions of billions of dollars going opposite directions. But there's also the health of the athlete. So in the age of social media, you know, we've we've seen it here where uh, recently Ohio State basketball players are getting, you know, threats on physical safety in their life because they missed a few shots, right? right, right. And people lost money on their performance. And this is the issue. Every, the, the safety and the mental health of college athletes because they're getting bombarded with threats and negative words and things like that. And then, you know, the other aspect is, you know, this isn't our, our granddaddy's sports betting, if you will, right, where you bet on who's going to win the game. And if you, you know, if you really wanted to, you know, point shave, you really had to get multiple players or the entire team involved to throw the game in the world of sports betting now, you can bet on an individual's performance. So you only need to get one player to maybe throw a throw an interception, right? Or you, you only need to get one guy on your side to do that because you can bet on individual performance, not the team performance. So it is a whole new ball game, no pun intended. <laughs> well, Mike, it sounds like you've got pretty good job security. <laughs> we, there's a lot to do. There, that's right. Before we... Uh finish up here give uh, any uh, advice or anything else that you want to add along these lines yeah I think it's just you know my organization Ohio in general we're not anti-gambling we want to make sure that we keep gambling safe and responsible for all those that do it and we want to make sure that we have really accessible and available resources for those that may that, that, that may be encountering issues and I guess I would leave with you know, we have a helpline, 1-800-GAMBLER, that's 24-7-365, and we encourage anyone to make the call. The individual person, family members or friends who may have concerns or questions, that helpline, those operators are trained. Uh, they know how to have conversations. They know what the resources are. And if it is just a loved one who's calling to get a 
on with their loved one if they want some resources or tips on how to have a conversation or if it is the individual that is doing the gambling and, and, and they want to talk or, or get directed to resources, we'd encourage anyone to make that call because uh, there's a lot of great resources out there that they may not know exist. Okay, and what were the websites again? Uh, well, 1-800-GAMBLER is the helpline. Then the other one I mentioned for youth is Change the Game Ohio. And then lastly would be Anyone can call Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. We connect everyone to all the various resources, so pgnohio.org as well can get get people where they need to be. Great. Mike Bazelli again. He's the Associate Director of the Problem Gambling Network of Ohio. Good information, Mike. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me and helping us kind of spread the word. Hey, this is Grace Gostet. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety, addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. When times get dark, we can't see the help that's all around us. Maybe you're not sure how you'll make rent, or you lost your job. When you don't know where to turn, let 211 be your guiding light. Our guides are ready to connect you with the help you need. 211, how can I help you? Call or visit 211.org. 211, get connected, get help. A message from United Way and the Ad Council. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Uh oh, Brad's buzzed. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he's starting with the woots. <laughs> And now a speech. I just want to say that friendship is about heart. Heart and brain. Who's with me? Good thing is, he knows when he's buzzed. And my brain is saying, when it's time to go home, somebody call me a ride. Love that guy. Me too. Know your buzzed warning signs? Call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me to talk about stroke is Dr. Jenny Sai. She is a vascular neurology specialist with the Cleveland Clinic and also a board member for the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, you. Thanks for having me. Well, we really want to get our message out there that strokes happen often. We see one stroke in every 40 seconds in America. And this is the time where we want to remind everybody that time is of essence when the stroke happens and calling 911 is really important. 
What is a stroke and, uh, and how common are they? Stroke affects a lot of people. Stroke occurs uh, one every 40 seconds, the statistics that we often talk about. And um, stroke is essentially when a blood vessel that delivers the most important thing, blood to the brain, gets uh, clogged and um, suddenly the brain is running without its uh, most essential support. And what are the symptoms, the signs of this happening? I've seen a, a few examples of uh, newscasters on television having a stroke while they're giving the news, and they start to kind of speak garble and look very confused, and you kind of get a sense that panic is sort of encircling them because they don't know what's going on. That's the S in, in BFAST, and this is why we you know, have the acronym so that when somebody noticed a symptom that uh, can fall into one of these categories, don't wait for everything else. Even if you have just one of them, even if you just have a suspicion, it's really important to call 911. We can do 2 million brain cells a minute. So how fast does somebody need to get attention, and, and what is done to uh, prevent further damage? Well, we definitely know that uh, time is of essence. We say time is brain, and that is for a reason. And when we bring the patient to the hospital, well, first off, the, when the emergency medical team arrives at the patient's side, um, treatment is immediately started, um, and they will alert the emergency uh, emergency department that a patient with a stroke is arriving. And so we can line up all the right players for the person who is arriving with a stroke. And we talk about, as a next step, delivering the right treatment, and that can come in the form of a clot-busting medication known, known as TNK or TPA. And if we need to, with the most severe stroke, where there's a big large vessel occlusion, we can get the team um, that can come and retrieve those clots, pull them straight out of the patient's head. People like myself will come in and do these procedures emergently. We call them mechanical thrombectomy. When somebody is in their home or wherever, and, uh, and if this happens and 911 is called, is there anything they should be doing when they, as they wait for the, for the ambulance to arrive? The most important thing is to make sure that the person is safe when they're having a stroke. The 911 team will arrive within minutes. Um, and the most important thing for the 911 team to gather uh, on arrival is to be able to make sure that they have a quick assessment of the patient and that we have all the information necessary for their medical history. So gathering their medication and having the contact information available for the family, making sure we know everything we need to know about their health Talking with Dr. Jenny Sai from the Cleveland Clinic, she's also a board member with the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. What about taking an aspirin? Sometimes we hear that's good, sometimes bad. We have required, we have asked the public to do so for for years, um, and really the most important thing is sometimes we talk about a stroke where blood clot is blocking the path of blood to the brain and causing the same symptoms, but sometimes it can be a bleed that happens inside the head, and we may not be able to tell that until the person 
is in the hospital. So as from being a blood thinner, giving that right before the patient leaves home is actually potentially dangerous if the person is having a bleed. So what we say is, for now, let's get the 911 team on board and let's get everybody to the hospital as quickly as possible. Um, and we will deliver the correct treatment in the correct place at the correct time. And I guess the uh, outcome in terms of recovery can run all, all across the board, right? We certainly know that, particularly with mechanical thrombectomy, we are now able to quickly treat some of the most severe stroke and the most disabling ones. And we know that we do um, see patients get better and some of them go back to their home lives when we deliver these treatments very, very quickly. So it's really key to recognize them very, very soon after a, a stroke happens. And when we do so, we do um, have the pleasure to send our patients home. And that is one of the most important things. We used to think about stroke as the end of everything, but we can survive stroke, we can do well, and we can see patients thrive after a stroke. And that's the most important message we want to deliver to the Get Ahead of Stroke campaign. Are there any symptoms days or weeks or even years before this, weird sensations in the head or anything that could preclude this? That would be great, wouldn't it? So sometimes we don't have any warning, and stroke symptoms tend to come up very, very quickly and very abruptly. And the key really is to recognize them when they come up and speak up on us. Again, 911 is the way to go. And I heard somebody say once that, who had a stroke, it felt like somebody had poured cold water on their head, that it wasn't painful, but just an odd sensation. Do you see things like that often? It's hard to predict how everyone would experience their stroke. It really depends on where the stroke is and how every person is affected. Um, And certainly when we came up with that acronym, VSAT, we try to capture as many of the key symptoms as we can. Um, Therefore, that's the really important part to remember that even though we cannot capture every variation of stroke presentation, BFAST will remind everybody of the most important symptoms that will allow us to capture most of those strokes. And Dr. Sai, where can folks get more information? We have a website through the Get Ahead of Stroke campaign um, supported by the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery, and that website is simply getaheadofstroke.org. Great. Uh, Dr. Jenny Sai with the Cleveland Clinic and the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery. Thanks for the information today. Thank you so much. Up next in a couple of minutes, Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families in Columbus. Parenting is hard. Technology can make it harder. The family media plan developed by the American Academy of Pediatrics helps make it easier. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan to create the media plan that's right for your family. Whether you make a full plan or just choose a few parts that matter the most to your family, healthychildren.org forward slash media plan is an easy to use tool that will help your family set media priorities and create healthy digital habits in line with your family's values. You'll also get practical tips to help make the plan work. And you can come back to revise your plan as often as you need to, like at the beginning of each school year or during summer and holiday breaks. Raising kids in the age of screens is easier when you have a plan. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan and make your plan today. Thinking of buying a home? The Ohio Housing Finance Agency can help. We have programs designed to help make home ownership part of your future. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency's Ohio Heroes 
grants for grads, and Your Choice Down Payment Assistance programs are all designed to help make purchasing a home affordable. To learn more, visit MyOhioHome.org. Sponsored by the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters, and this station. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. Heather and I had an argument just like any other couple. I was lost. I had snapped. I had a gun, and I was going to take my own life. Heather helped me realize that there was still a life to live for the better of myself, my family. My weapon is now safely put away. A moment of crisis can happen to anyone. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. Young people are leaving foster care at the age of 18 with little support and few skills. The National Fund for Foster Children partners with individuals, businesses, churches, and civic groups to provide mentorship, training, and assistance to foster children. Teach a young person a new skill or help them with homework. You don't need to be a foster parent to help a foster child. To find out how you can help, go to fosterchildrenfund.org or contact us on Facebook, National Fund for Foster Children. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. How are you doing, Dwayne? I'm doing good, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us about Directions for Youth and Families. Uh, we are a nonprofit who works with youth and families in the community. We serve over 7,000 people in Franklin County um, through our counseling services. We also have two after-school centers. And between prior names and who was involved, it's uh, got like a 100-year history, right? Yeah, through, uh, uh, we've been through several mergers and uh, Crittenden Family Services. Um, actually, the Crittenden Center started in Columbus in 1899 as a home for unwed mothers. So that's one of the mergers. Directions for Youth is one. Friends in Action is one. And One to One is one. And the Shortstop Team Drop-In Center. So it's really a, we're a collection of five different agencies over the last uh, hundred uh, plus years. That's great. When we talk to Dwayne, which we try to do about once a month or so, we bring up other topics along the way. And I, and I found an article that I thought was interesting that we would talk about. And it talks about the differences in young men and one, young women in terms of the way they're adapting to society perhaps especially since the pandemic and how it seems to show that young men are just kind of wrapping themselves up in social media and porn and games and, and kind of checking out from society. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, the isolation that occurred during the pandemic across the board I, oh, for everybody, um, you know, it, it, this went on for a little while. So new behaviors uh, uh, and new patterns emerged. Um not all patterns that emerge are functional. Some are dysfunctional. Um, you can have healthy patterns. You can have unhealthy ones. Uh, but a lot of them that came from the pandemic moved um, in almost in a, a non-social way. It, it, people got used to being isolated and found other ways to entertain themselves outside of human interaction. More than 60% of young men are single, nearly twice the rate of unattached young women. And this uh, story goes on to say that that doesn't seem to make sense, except that women in their 20s, some of them end up in relationships with men in their 30s, which aren't in the young category. It also says men in their 20s are more likely than women in their 20s to be romantically uninvolved, sexually dormant, friendless, and lonely. Pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, you 
you know what? It's kind of funny. I, I, you know, I'm a redditor, and I know there's all kinds of, uh, of feeds on Reddit, and there is. Um, I don't even remember the name of it, but it's a group of people who um, really are almost like asexual, and they, they've almost like uh, um, committed themselves, so that's the way they're going to be. You know, people make a lot of fun of Redditors because um, uh, they say these are people who just sit in their basement and game and don't bathe and eat junk food and uh, look at porn. So, um, I mean, that's kind of a joke, but that almost speaks to the group that you're talking about, that this are uh, so many people became isolated um, and they got comfortable with this. And so this is what they're doing now. But apparently some of them also angry because it, or, or despondent because it also says young men commit suicide at four times the rate of young women. Younger men are also largely responsible for the rising rates of mass shootings. Yeah, you know, when it, when it comes to even when you look at just suicide as a whole, uh, whenever uh, men attempt compared to women, uh, men usually go a very lethal route. Um, so there's almost, in a sense, more successful suicides uh, with that. Yeah, again, there's also isolation. There are mental health issues across the board, uh, probably in all age groups, um, truly uh, went up through the pandemic. Um, isolation, and we're social human beings, and, and to have that lack of contact with other individuals uh, made it tough. You, you, you know, if you really didn't have close friends before, you probably what ties you did have really waned during uh, uh, the pandemic, which then you have no one to bounce things off of. And I always tell people there's all types of, of therapy or counseling or mental health, and some of it can be if you have a healthy support network who is positive and healthy and, and you can bounce things off of them, that's a form of therapy, you know, group therapy. All these things stopped, um, and I think that that just made it very tough on everyone across the board. Talking with Dwayne Casares, uh, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. Seems like one of the scary things about this is I think it's pretty much a given that men in general have fewer friends than women do. You know, they're not as socially active through their work and other organizations as women. They don't spill their problems to each other like women do in general. And yet men, I think, do that more when they're younger than as they get older. So if they're getting off to this start young and not doing that, that just doesn't bode well at all. Yeah, and part of it is just the roles of what, you know, when we're, we're looking at um, how society defines certain roles. A lot of that was defined a long time ago. You know, men don't do this, men don't do that, men don't do this. Um, uh, first off, those aren't truths. Uh, and, and secondly, there can be a, a lot of uh, detrimental things that come from that. But I think this just escalated that pattern. So you, you think that men are more social than what the uh, kind of the reputation is? No, I think it's whether you've been socialized not to. They've been socialized not to open up about and talk about their problems or, or be emotional or be sensitive. Um, these are long-standing uh, 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 kind of standards that are just really outdated, but they're still pushed um, at times. It, it's even pushed from, from both sides. I'm not just saying that it's coming from uh, uh, one gender to uh, the other. I mean, both of them are involved. You know, you, you, when you look at the Internet, and you'll see people say, you know, Let's, I'm not going to date a man who does this or that, or I need a man who's going to be strong. So that's just feeding into it. Like, if, if you're going to talk about your emotions and that is seen as weak, when the fact of the matter is, when I look at anybody, men or women, who are willing to open up about their emotions and tackle their mental health problems, these are people of great courage. Um, it takes a lot of courage to be able to uh, confront some of the dysfunction that's going on around you, and then actually a lot of courage to take the step to do something about it and get healthy. 
It's interesting. So when you're saying that, you know, men, by being less social, they're kind of staying in their lane, the way they're expected to act, which is one of the things that you talk about all the time is the danger of normalizing things that are not healthy. Yeah, when you start to normalize things to the point that you no longer recognize that they're dysfunctional, uh, you've kind of moved your gauge. So um, what is normal for you has now shifted and that doesn't necessarily mean it shifted in a healthy way. When you surround yourself with other people who are doing the same thing, they're actually validating your behavior. Um, and, and when you do that, then you think, well, then there's something wrong with it. So that's how you normalize it. That's how people normalize dysfunctional behavior because they're really gathering around other people who have the same behaviors, which often happens in the Internet. You can find the Internet community for anything. Um, and then that way they validate each other. Talking with Dwayne Casares from Directions for Youth and Families. He's not only the CEO, but he was formerly the clinical director and is a licensed therapist as well. When loneliness is one of the biggest problems that people face, if that enters into a discussion with a therapist or a counselor, how do you fix that? You know, there's many things. One thing is, is you have to make sure that some people are just isolates in general, and they don't necessarily, people who are almost natural isolates, um, they don't have a bigger problem with being alone. They have a bigger problem when they're forced into social situations. So you have to be careful. So everyone's different, and there's a continuum in all behaviors. There are some people who are just more isolates in nature. That's a lot different than somebody who was forced into isolation from the pandemic. And now they're trying to embrace a new lifestyle um, just because of how they're coming out of it. Uh, these are two different things. So you have to distinguish that first. Um, we always look at support networks and support systems because uh, no one can do these things in isolation, especially um, if, if you're truly trying to change things and go through a healing process. Uh, it's always important to have um, safety nets and other people that you can turn to. Um, isolation doesn't afford itself that. And, and I think the Internet doesn't necessarily afford itself that in some respects. In other respects, I think in, in some fringe groups, you can find others that are like you, and that can be very, very helpful. But as a whole, um, you, you can open yourself up to a lot of attacks from other people. Yeah, it's so interesting that, you know, the Internet and uh, gaming and all that stuff is is perhaps one of the biggest contributors to this problem and yet also offers some pretty dynamic solutions that didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah, and I think it, it, it's like all relationships. You can have gamers who are healthy and you can have those that aren't so healthy. So, I mean, I know a lot of gamers who uh, I found this weird. My, several years ago, my son and his gaming group took a road trip to meet other people that they had been gaming with for 10 years. I think they were like in Minnesota or, or something like that. I looked at my son like, okay, well, that's weird. <laughs> and his best buddy looked at me and goes, to be truthful, I've known them a lot longer than I've known you. Um, and, and that really kind of opened my eyes. It's kind of like, I guess if you're gaming with somebody every week for 10 years, you do get to know them. So, right. um, But those can be healthy relationships. There can be unhealthy ones as well. Talking with Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO, Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more info about your agency, Dwayne, how do they find out about it? Uh, they can check us out at dfyf.org. Dwayne Casares, again, thanks for talking to us, Dwayne. We'll see you later. Thank you, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.
Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.